All right. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel. Uh, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 18 in a minute. Before we open God's Word, let's pray and ask God's Spirit to open our hearts to the reading and studying of His Word. Father, thank You for who You are and that You hold us fast, that we are secure in Your hands and that there is nothing that could ever separate us from Your love that is revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. We are grateful for these moments to be together as Your family, to hear from You, And so, Father, I pray as we continue this look into David's life that we would be challenged in our own walk, considering the grace that you showed David every step of of his life. And, Father, we know that you are for us. You are not against us. And when we face adversity and trials, Father, it's good to know that you use all of it to perfect Christ-likeness in our lives. And so I pray for every person here this morning that as your spirit works in our lives, wherever we find ourselves in the journey that that we're walking in, that we would know that you're by our side constantly and that you have surrounded us with a community of people to encourage us and to pray for us. And Father, that by your grace, you continue to provide above and beyond all that we can ask or think. And so, Father, have your way in our hearts this morning. May we become more like your Son, our great Savior, who died on the cross for our sins. For it's in his name we ask it. Amen. This morning when uh, Pastor Dustin was doing the welcome, I, I thought for a moment that, you know, he was kind of like on a roll with all the funnies. Like he was talking about the eagles and all, you know, like I thought it was like a stand up you know, time. and But, you know, I'm going to piggyback on some of what he said about the game tonight. I mean, who do you got, right? That seems like a dumb question to ask in Philadelphia Eagle country. I mean, for, for guys in western Pennsylvania like me, we're a little jealous now. Um, if there are any Chiefs fans here, keep it to yourself, please. <laughs> My son might be rooting for them. I'm not going to say yes or no. Uh, He just kind of likes to stir the pot. So, Um, but I don't, maybe you notice this or not. Every year after the Super Bowl game is completed and the parade confetti falls and everyone is celebrating on the winning side, they usually go to a commercial break kind of quick and it's a live commercial. And there's usually one or two of the athletes that just won the Super Bowl. And the question is asked, where are you going? And where do they say they're going? To Disney World. And typically the day after the Super Bowl, if it's on the East Coast, they go to Orlando and they participate as the Grand Marshals of the Disney parade that goes through the Magic Kingdom. If it's on the West Coast, usually Disneyland in California, and they go through this process of being lauded and celebrated for their great achievements. They celebrate the high watermark of the achievement as a champion in what is considered the most magical place on earth. 
Now, as we, con- as we continue our study in David's life today, we come on the curtails of a great victory against a giant. Last week, we looked at the, the classic story of David versus Goliath. How God had miraculously worked through David's life because David had a confident trust in who the Lord is. And we talked about this last week. There wasn't anything special in what David did except believe in God. In fact, if you remember, at least twice in this passage, one time amongst the army of Israel and one time as he stood before the giant himself, David places his trust in the Lord just by confidently saying, Lord, I'm defending your name. Your name is so great and you are so good in all of your ways that I can't help but stand up for you. And God gave him the victory. The giant fell. Israel ran against the Philistines and chased them out of the country. It seemed like the greatest victory that those people had experienced to this point. And yet what we see is there are no parades. There's celebration. But the problem is it doesn't last for a very long time. Now, if I were writing the story of David's life at this point, where a teenage shepherd who conquers a nine-foot, nine-inch giant named Goliath and wins the day for God's people, knowing that this same shepherd teenage boy has been anointed by the judge Samuel to be the king of Israel in the future, if I was writing David's story, I would have him just ride off into the sunset with fanfare and excitement and all of the, the celebration that goes with that great victory. But at this point in David's life, from chapter 18 on, even though he... F- he received a miraculous victory. His life will be antagonized. He will face turmoil, maneuvering, and once what he thought were good relationships will turn sour. David's life with God's anointing is not going to be easy. Let's just replace David's name with your name. Let me replace it with my name. Pastor Todd's life in Jesus Christ is not going to be easy. God never promises easy for us. He doesn't. We wish he did. We wish that because we love the Lord and we know that he loves us, that we can walk through life and and know that every step is going to just be tiptoeing through the daisies. It's not. Jesus promised that. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. You remember the rest of what he said? Take heart, for I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have trouble. David's life with God's anointing is not going to be easy. He will face the highest of success and the deepest of lows. His life becomes a real page-turner of a book. I mean, 
his life would make a good movie. Not just chapter 17 with him and Goliath, and that in itself could make it a, a, a good movie, but really the span of his life. He is front and center of receiving deceit, treachery, friendship, miraculous power, and amazing victory. He's going to lose friends and he's going to gain strong allies. And through it all, he is still a man after God's own heart. He's not going to be perfect. And we're going to see that. But he's still trusted in the Lord. Now, how would you respond if you were David? Based on what you know about him, and and even go through the, the whole story. Like, let's just say for a moment, God gave us the opportunity to see the forest from the trees, the big picture of our lives. And you were able to see all the future moments that are going to happen in your life. Would that cause you to change your praise and trust in the Lord who loves you? In fact, it was that idea that pondered Chuck Swindoll, who wrote a book on David's life and other biblical characters. Um, He said this about this portion of David's life. Uh, When was the last time you thanked the Lord for not showing you the future? Haven't Haven't you prayed sometimes and hoped sometimes God would just show you what is right around the corner? Okay, God, if I do this, where are you going to lead me? Okay, God, I hear you wanting me to trust you in this area. If I do, how will you provide? And yet, do we even ask the question to ourselves, when was the last time we thanked the Lord for not showing us the future? Isn't that a good gift that God doesn't show us all of it, every detail? It's in the setting of the scene for chapter 18 that Swindoll calls us to consider this gift that God gives by showing not exactly what is going to happen in our lives. It really is a good gift. Just think over your life in the last few years. Isn't it good that God didn't tell you ahead of time exactly what was going to happen? If you did know what would happen... How much time in your life, if you're honest, would be spent in worrying about those moments that are soon coming? Life changes. Life changes at a breakneck speed all the time. People change. Friends change. Jobs change. Your home life has changed. But God, He's the only constant. He never changes. Swindoll goes on to say, God is good not to show us tomorrow. That's what makes the Bible so relevant. On the heels of a great victory, David is plunged into one of the deepest, longest, and darkest valleys of his entire life. The rest of 1 Samuel is one constant, long running of David. Like running for his life. He'll have glimpses where he'll be able to pause and take a breath 
But really from this point forward, and we're thinking if you put the time together, at least 15 years of his life are going to be spent running so that he can live. It was good that God did not tell David what was to come. We even said a few weeks ago when we started this look into David's life that when Samuel visited him and he was anointed, the text in 1 Samuel 16 doesn't tell us that Samuel specifically said, David, this is why you are receiving the anointing. You're going to be the next king. It is only the history, the historical narrative, the traditions of the Jewish people that they added that he whispered in his ear, you're going to be king. David maybe didn't know what was going on in his own life. He just knew that God was blessing him. Turn with me quickly to James chapter 1. This, I believe, is one of the great reasons why God doesn't tell us what is to come down the road. We've looked at this passage several times, but it is very good for us to revisit it, to be reminded of what God is doing in the midst of the details of our lives. James chapter 1, verses 2 and following. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Consider it all joy when you slay the giant and the king chases after you and hurls a spear at you. And devises plans to cause you to trip up and to fall. Consider it all joy when the king agrees, as we will read later on, that you may marry his daughter, but he hopes it be a trap for you. Consider it all joy when your family doesn't understand the anointing that you received. And in the midst of fighting a great giant, cause to question the motives of why you're there at the battle. Consider it all joy for us when you faithfully follow God and the people that you love for some reason stop loving you. Consider it all joy when you're trusting God for all that He provides and you get the news that your job is no longer there. 
or that a financial pay cut is so necessary that it's going to change everything in your life. Consider it all joy when you believe in the promises of God and the news that you receive from the doctor is not good, but it's rather ominous. Consider it all joy. Are we able to do that today? Are we able to see, not just in this moment, but that over our whole life, that God is incredibly faithful to those whom He loves? And because He is faithful, God will use every moment of our lives to perfect Christ-likeness in us. Can we consider it all joy because there is never a wasted moment that we go through? Isn't that good for us? There is not one trial that you have faced in life. There is not one mountaintop that you have shouted upon that God will not use to perfect His Son in your life. And so we look at David's life from the highest of high of a great victory to verses later running away. And we still know that God is good. So we're going to begin looking at this idea today. It's really going to carry us for a while. I mean, you're going to have to keep this big thought in your mind over the next several weeks in 1 Samuel But the major thrust of our passage today is the outcome of the victory that David received against Goliath. And as a result, many of the relationships that David had or are going to have are affected by this victory. They're very personal relationships and they're they're relationships at a national level, a, a bigger picture kind of thing. Remember, to this point, David was a nobody from Israel. He showed up at the battle that day in 1 Samuel 17 sent by his father to check on his three oldest brothers to bring food so that the general or the person that was in charge of their care would put them in a good position so that they might be spared in battle. And he shows up that day at the valley, and he's like, hey guys, what's going on here? And he heard the cries of the giant, and he says, why aren't any of you standing up to him? We have God on our side. And this nobody shepherd boy gets the victory. And now he's thrust into the spotlight. And this is what we read. The first relationship that God provides for David as a result of the victory of Goliath is a friend that will be with him closely until the end of the friend's life. We're introduced to him in verse 1 of chapter 18. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of, of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. And then verses 3 and 4 we read, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor including his sword and his bow and his belt. 
And so the first relationship formed is with Jonathan. Now, we haven't done an extensive study in 1 Samuel. We've only, we only picked up the narrative in chapter 16. But if you knew anything earlier on, Jonathan is the oldest son of King Saul. In fact, Jonathan went out to battle on behalf of his father as king, and he received victory. Jonathan is the oldest of the king's sons. What would that tell you? If I was Jonathan, if I was in his shoes, and my dad was king, and I'm the oldest, if something happens to dad, what should that mean for me? I'm the next in line. I'm the next king. And isn't it interesting in God's providence that God's choice for the next king in David would be brought in relationship with the next supposed king, Jonathan. And in no way at all does Jonathan, as they walk together, consider, you're out for my job. No, in fact, other, we read otherwise. We're not sure what that first conversation was like. We don't know what they talked about. We don't know what drew them together, except that we read that his soul was knitted to the soul of David. And that Jonathan made a promise. He made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. What a powerful and beautiful description. As I said in 1 Samuel 14, verses 1 through 15, indicate that Jonathan was a man of courage. And here these two are brought together under Saul's roof and they become soul brothers. They both have the common purpose of trusting and obeying God. And it's in this way that they are knit together. Jonathan's relationship with David will be a great source of encouragement as we will see later in the unfolding life of David throughout 1 Samuel. The Lord knew that David needed a close friend for what he was about to face. The Lord knew. David had no idea. He didn't know what was going to happen tomorrow or next week or next year. But in God's providence, Enjoy for David. He says, David, I'm going to provide for you what I know you're going to need. And what does he need? He needs a loyal friend. He needs someone to stand in the trenches with him. He needs someone that he can go to and confide in and to be encouraged with. Listen, close friends are rare in life. We're talking about close friends, we're not talking about Facebook friends. We're talking about people that are there thick and thin through the seasons of life, through the highest joys and the greatest lows. We live in a world where we are the most connected people that have ever existed, but we live in a world that we are the most lonely people that have ever lived. We're desperate for connecting. And we need to see that as an act of grace, God will provide people for us. There are not going to be a lot of them. But I hope you see the value of a friend that is going to stick closer than a brother. That's what Proverbs 18.24 says. There is a friend 
that sticks closer than a brother. They know your heart. They know your fears. They know your disappointments. They're kindred spirits. They're rare, not because they're difficult to find, but they're rare because it's not realistic to have many of them. I mean, let's just be honest. Like, we we want these kind of people in our lives, right? We want to be this kind of person in someone's life, right? But we can't have a lot of them. It just functionally doesn't work. Because in every relationship, there's an investment of time, emotional energy, and effort. I was reading this summer while I was on sabbatical, one of the misconceptions that we struggle with when we are a part of a community of people like this in the church is that everyone will be a best friend to us. You know, we come to church and walk in the door and we think we're all going to be best friends forever. It just doesn't work that way. It's not realistic. In fact, the, the book that I read that was written by a pastor made the point that for any one of us, we are likely to only count on one hand how many close friends that we actually have. And if you're an extrovert and an extreme extrovert, maybe a few fingers on the next hand. But that's about it. The danger is sometimes we think that everyone needs to be our close friend at a deep level. And just because we meet someone, it's like, okay, we're going to immediately share the deep things about everything with each other, and it's going to be great and wonderful, and we're going to sing Kumbaya and praise the Lord. It just doesn't work that way. And and church, as a pastor, I've been pastoring churches for 20 years now. It's nothing new when I say that it's impossible to have those kind of relationships with every person that you see in the building. And so we need to be careful that we don't put those kind of expectations on each other. But we also need to understand that when God does provide people like a Jonathan to a David... We hold on to them, and we praise God for him, and we thank him for his grace in providing people that can walk through the deepest valleys of our lives, and we can be honest and authentic with them and understand that they know me, and they know everything about me, and they still love me, right? Aren't those the kind of people we need? The reality is that there are few people in our lives that will be there like Jonathan will be for David. I say that not to discourage you. I I don't want you to be like, oh man, you just told me I can't be friends with anyone here. No, I'm not saying that at all. I don't say that to discourage you. I say that to encourage you. That if you have a Jonathan in your life, thank God for them. And praise God for His grace in providing them. Now, a quick note on their relationship. And I only bring this up. Not, I don't want to make a, a big deal about this. This is not Pastor Todd's hobby horse for the next 10 minutes that shanghais the rest of the sermon. But I, I need to bring it up because it came up in at least three different resources that I read this week. 
Three different resources written by three different people from three different contexts, okay? Um, We just need to take a moment and talk about this relationship that David and Jonathan had. Because there are liberal scholars that say, and they point to this passage and say that David and Jonathan had some kind of homosexual relationship. Because their souls were knit together. And that Jonathan made a covenant for David. And and can we just pause for a second and say, there is nothing in the text at all. Like there's not even a hint of it that talks about any kind of relationship like that. Not even for an instance. In fact, we read four times in, in this passage in 1 Samuel 18 that David was loved. Not just by Jonathan. He was loved by Saul. He was loved by the people of Israel. I mean, he was, he was a loved man coming out of the great victory of Goliath. This is not some kind of proof text. And we just, I, I want you to be aware of it because we're living in a world where people are more and more trying to find reasons to insert behaviors into the scripture and say, well, it's there. It's not there. If you read the whole context of the passage, it's not there at all. It's an overreach to make this passage say more than what it says. And so David provided, or David was provided for with Jonathan. And in the midst of that budding friendship, we read that King Saul brought David under his care. In verses 2 and 5, we read, Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. So remember, David was a shepherd boy. From that day on, from Goliath, Saul took David under his roof. And we read at the end of chapter 16 that when the Spirit of the Lord descended on David, it departed from Saul, and Saul was given a spirit to terrorize him from God, and and Saul would have fits of madness. And the only thing that could soothe King Saul's mind is David's music. And we read that in this relationship more and more, King Saul said, David needs to stick with, with me closer and closer. And so in verse 2 we read, David was brought under Saul's care. This young man who had not belonged to the army became a leader of men in the army of Israel. Look at verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. That's a fascinating statement if you understand the dynamics of it all. Right? You have career military men. Right? They'd given their life for the king's service. Hardened, seasoned, battle-tested men. And the king says, Okay, hey guys, just so you know, this teenager, he's in charge of you. And they're thinking, hey, he did a great thing. I mean, he killed the giant, but he hasn't gone through any of the training. We don't know if he's battle-tested. What's he going to do? But we read in the text in verse 5 that it pleased them when David was placed over them. David found favor as God's Spirit rested on him. 
it would seem that everything was going well for David at this point. This might be the closest thing to a Mickey Mouse parade David's going to get. He had the golden touch, a position, a loyal friend, access to the king, success everywhere he went until he didn't. Success everywhere he went until he didn't. Aren't there moments in our lives when we feel like danger is soon lurking around the corner? You ever feel like that? Like you're just kind of like peeking around the corner. It's like, hey, everything seems to be good. When's it all going to fall out? Right? And we talked about this last week between being an optimist and a pessimist. And if you're more of a pessimist, you're probably always looking around the corner for everything to fall out underneath you. But there are those moments and times when we walk through life where we think, this is too good to be true. What I mean is, it just doesn't seem like good times last too long. But that in and of itself is for our good as well. And while God didn't give David a blueprint for what is ahead of his life, he did promise that he would be with him. We need to find courage in David's story. Not that he was great in what he did, but that he trusted God even when difficulty came. And so in verses 6 through 9, this is what we read. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And so, right, the Philistines were run off. They were defeated because Goliath, their champion, is dead. This was a time of great celebration. This is victory day for the nation of Israel. King Saul is marching through. Everyone is coming out of their homes, singing and playing the tambourines and all the good things, making joyful noises. In verse 7, the women sang as they played and said, Saul was slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. They sing a song. Now here's the thing about verse 7. We understand the irony of what they're saying, but in reality, the song that they sang is both good for Saul and David. They're not in the song saying Saul has only killed his thousands and David his ten thousands, that Saul is inferior. No, what they're saying is that Saul has had victory, David has had victory, and we're celebrating them both. But in verse 8, we read, then Saul became very angry. So, right, let's put this together, okay? Let's put the timeline together as best as we can. Verse 6, it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine. So, put verse 6 right after the events of chapter 17. They, uh, David had just finished killing the Philistine. And now we're reading the king became very angry for this saying displeased him and he said they have ascribed to david ten thousands but to me they have ascribed thousands now what more can he have but the kingdom he's becoming more aware of something now that was never made known to him 
Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. From that day on. When was that day? Right after killing the Philistine. David did not have a long time to celebrate this victory. So we read in verses 10 through 16 the lengths that Saul is now going to in his suspicion. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved at the, in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. If I was David, it happened the first time. I wouldn't show up the second time. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as his commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. And he went out and came in before them. Saul, it started with suspicion, right? With him. And his suspicion turned into jealousy. And as Saul became more and more jealous, he became more and more angry. And he tries to take David out of the equation. Why? Because he's afraid because he knows the Lord is with him. That's what verse 12 says. Now Saul was afraid of David for the Lord was with him. It's becoming more and more clear that Saul was seeing something about this man that came out of nowhere that is playing his harp in front of him and killing giants. That this man is special. And Saul does not have that same kind of spirit in his own life. Because God's spirit departed from him due to his disobedience. So what does Saul do? He, he removes him from his presence and he says, okay, like David's a hero at this point. I can't get rid of him completely, so I'll just put him in charge of a thousand. A smaller amount of people in my armies. Well, how does that go for David? It goes very well. He prospered in all his ways for the Lord was with him. You know what that tells me? A couple things. And this is where we need to enter the text and say, okay, I feel like David sometimes, right? Where there doesn't ever seem to be any victory. I finally get a victory and now it's like, oh my gosh, how long is this going to end? Where trouble just seems to visit me again and again and again and again. Well, what I see here is this. Yes, God was giving David success wherever he went. But notice when trouble came, nowhere in the text does it say that David complained. Now you might say, you know, Pastor, David wrote a lot of the Psalms, and it really seems like there's a lot of complaining in the Psalms. So there's a difference between complaining and lamenting to God, okay? Okay. We know what complaining is like, right? 
That's what we do on Monday morning, sitting around the coffee table with our friends that we commiserate with. We just complain about this and that and the other thing. But there's a difference between that kind of response where you're just saying, I can't believe it. I, how could God let this happen? I thought he loved me. And going to him in prayer and saying, God, I don't understand what is ahead of me, but I'm going to trust in you for what is ahead of me. David doesn't complain. He continues to praise God in the midst of the storm that he's facing. And it came after a great military defeat. Goliath was slain and the crowds were thrilled, but the victory lap that David had was short-lived. And yet David was faithful to the Lord. He was faithful to God. Did David know what was in store for him? No. Of course he didn't. But he knew the Lord was good. And the Lord would hold him fast. Look around in your life right now. I'm sure it doesn't always seem like a victory lap. I'm sure there are times and seasons where you're like, will it ever end? But look closer into your life. Along the way, Jonathan was provided for David as an asset. Who are the people in your life that God has placed that are knit to your heart? That even though life is difficult, you know you're not alone. A friend that was closer than a brother. A friend for David to confide in. A friend to share the burden of life with. Who are the people the Lord has placed in your life that help strengthen you when you are weak? Those who walk with you through life's greatest struggles. Those friends that are with you no matter what. Even when you act like a fool. Those kinds of friends are a gift from God. And while you are looking around, close in your life, don't forget to look up. Ask yourself, I mean, really ask yourself this question. Has there ever been a moment in your life when the Lord has not been with you? Watch for his goodness in the midst of the storm. Trust that he will always bring about his perfect will for you in his time. Let's pray.